you may not know this, but it has been seven weeks since I've last preached. Yeah, so get ready for a seven-hour sermon. Just kidding. No, I, actually, this one's probably going to be one of my shorter ones, and I, and I even brought a timer up here to make sure I don't do that. But I share that because seven weeks ago, um, we, we planned out the schedule, and I was like, all right, I'm going to be preaching December 8th, and the passage is going to be... Luke 2, 1 through 7. And I say that, and I know it sounds like scandalous to some of you. You're like, how dare you, Sam? That's God's holy word. It is God's holy word. But this is a very well-known story that even non-Christians know pretty well. And so when I discovered that this was my passage, I felt very discouraged and intimidated because I was like, what can I say that has not been said before? This, the moment I start preaching on this, people will be like, yeah, 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 I know that. I could preach that better than you, Sam, right? Like, I, I was afraid to touch this text, but then I started to look at the text with fresh eyes. And if this is really God's word, then it has something for us today and tomorrow. And if we looked at it again a week from now, it will have something for us again. And, and as I looked at this passage, I was absolutely floored at the treasure that this passage is. I, I repented. I was like, God, forgive me. I didn't realize how good it was, how magnificent it was. And so the, the Bible truly is like a diamond. You know how a diamond has different facets, and as you turn it, you can see other beauties, other sides of it you haven't seen. Even something that a diamond you've seen a million times, there's another facet if you turn it. And that's what happened this week, and I am absolutely excited to share this with you. I want you to know that as I looked at this, I was floored by the absurd humility of Jesus. The absurd humility of Jesus. And that's what I believe the main point of this passage is, is that we are to marvel at the absurd humility of Jesus. And, and, and maybe you're like me, and you need a fresh revelation of the birth of Jesus this Advent season. And I pray that that would happen. And if, if, you're, if you're like me, where you're kind of desensitized, you're like, oh, sweet baby Jesus, you know, like, that's great and all. If you're like me and you're feeling that, then ask God right now again afresh that God would speak to you and show you the sweetness and the magnificence of, um, of the birth of Jesus. Now, I said to you that the main point of this sermon is that I want you and all of us to marvel at the absurd humility of Jesus. And I want to highlight real quick why I say the word absurd. You don't usually say that in a sermon. Let me remind you what the word absurd means. Okay, this is a quick de definition. Absurd means this, wildly unreasonable, illogical, or inappropriate. We're going to go back to that. So let me let you know kind of where we're going today. So we're going to start off by zooming out into this very, very big picture about what's going on in the whole world. And we're going to look at the ruler of the world, the king, the proud king of the whole world, Caesar Augustus. And then, as we go further into the text, we're going to zoom in and we're going to look at the humble King Jesus. And then we're going to talk about what does this mean for ourselves so let's zoom out real quick at looking at the proud king. If you have your Bible, please look at it in Luke 2. I know that we have Bibles on the screen, but you know what, who that's for? That's for unbelievers who are visiting. <laughs> and I know we pushed that hard in the beginning, but I want to encourage you to bring your Bible. Open it up. Take notes in it if you feel okay about doing that. But this is for those who um, don't have their Bibles with them. Phones, are Bible, phones have Bibles. 
there's something about the written text that's something, I don't know. Luke 2, 1 through 3. Let's read this again. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. So this is a census. Verse 2. This was the first registration when Quirinius, Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. Now let me unpack that. But before I do, I want to draw your attention to something very, very simple and obvious, but yet is very significant. There are a lot of details in these few, few verses, are there? And you could easily be like, blah, 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 blah. Okay, let's get to the meat of it. Tell me something theological or important. But actually, this is very important. And if you remember, the writer of the Gospel, Luke, Luke, is a physician, and he's very detail-oriented, and he's writing it not because of just his personality is very detail-oriented, but because he's trying to give someone assurance of the things that have been said about Jesus. Just remember, Luke is writing this story about Jesus, and he's interviewing eyewitnesses, and he's accounting, and he's putting different historical markers and facts throughout the text so that whoever reads this can have certainty that this really happened. And when you go to something very familiar like the birth of Jesus, it's very easy for us to sit there and think, you know, this is like a fairy tale. You have this very iconic scene of smiling cows. Somehow cows can smile, right? And baby, sweet baby Jesus sitting there in this sweet crib with perfect lighting. And what we can do is with this familiarity of this text that we can start thinking to ourselves, this is kind of like a fairy tale. This is kind of like something that's mythical. But actually, Luke would have none of that. If you read the Gospel of Luke, it reads like a historical account, because it is. And so, as we get into this, I want you to remember that Luke is giving us an historical account for something that actually happened in space, in time, and we get to read about it. And we get to learn more about it. This is very sweet. So, he gives us these details so that we can remember this is something that actually happened. Now, let's talk about Caesar Augustus. Okay, Caesar Augustus, if you see in the second line over here, Caesar Augustus was a really big deal. Now, those who actually, who, who originally wrote this, Luke and those recipients, Theophilus or whoever he is, would know exactly who Caesar Augustus is. Because he literally was the most famous, important person in the world. But for us, maybe you don't know who Caesar Augustus is. And this is important because what Luke is going to do is he's going to contrast Caesar Augustus and King Jesus. So let me give you some a general overview of Caesar Augustus. Now, Caesar Augustus was actually not born in a royal line. He was adopted by another well-known Caesar named Julius Caesar, if you've heard that name before. Now, Julius Caesar adopted him in Roman law. You, when you got adoption, you actually became full heir like your blood, blood son. Now, Caesar Augustus, after, sorry, Caesar, uh, Julius Caesar, after he died, the tricky thing is, is that there was two factions within the Roman Empire. You had Mark Anthony and his lover, Cleopatra. You guys ever heard of them? And then on the other hand, you had Caesar Augustus, formerly known as Octavian. And they had a civil war. And you know who won? Caesar Augustus. Okay, so Caesar Augustus won. He transitioned the empire from a Senate-led uh, government to actually an empire, where he ruled supreme. And he was extremely effective. Have you guys ever heard of this term called Pax Romana? Right? What happened is Caesar Augustus uh, led in such a way where there was unprecedented growth, uh, prosperity, peace. And you know what? Uh, shortly later, he actually deified his father, his adopted father, Caesar, um, Ju Julius Caesar. And so he called him a god. Which, if his father is God, 
what does that make him? A son of God. And later on after he died, people actually deified him. And there was such a thing as called the imperial cult. And people would actually worship Caesar Augustus. There's actually a statue with inscription under it that says, Savior of the world. Whew. So, so if, unless you checked out the moment I said historical account, you're probably flagging and connecting dots. Holy moly. He's called the Savior of the world, the Son of God. This is all very intentional. Luke isn't just say, saying this just for no other reason. He's trying to flag your attention that he's about to do something. And it's also for those who are hearing this to say, oh, I, I remember when that happened. And again, remember, reminding us that this is a historical account. Now, in the, in the midweek podcast, I want to go deep into the sovereignty of God and how he is ruling over all rulers in the world. And there's this beautiful pattern you see throughout the scriptures where God takes literally the, the ruler of the world and, and puts him as a pawn in his great good plan. We're going to get more into that into the midweek podcast about how God does that, and especially pertinent for us today with all the craziness of politics in the world, current affairs. But I do want to make a point that God is using Caesar Augustus's, his greed and his ambition and pride to bring about a fulfillment of, his pro- of a messianic prophecy in Micah 5. Okay? God is going to use this man's pride and, humility, uh, and, his, and his ambition and his greed to bring about a fulfillment of a messianic prophecy that's hundreds of years old. Okay? So look at Micah 5, 2, if you have a Bible. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. If you're not familiar with the Bible, but you have one around you in the Pew Bible, there's these ones under you. Um, it's in the Old Testament right before the new begins. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Epaphrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Now there's a lot here and obviously worthy of a sermon, but let me highlight three points. Number one, there's a ruler that's going to come out of this town called Bethlehem. Number two, Bethlehem is little. Do you see? Who are too little to be among the clans. Bethlehem was small compared to Israel. And so when you compare it to the wider world like Rome, it was a backwater, podunk, nobody has ever heard of it kind of town. And three, notice this. What's going to come out? A ruler. But what was the ruler going to be like? Look at this. Whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. This is not an ordinary man. This ruler coming forth from Bethlehem is from ancient days. Daniel talks about the ancient of days. This, this, this ruler coming has been from there from the beginning. Long before time began, he has always been there. So Caesar Augustus, in his greed, is setting up this census, and so it requires everyone to go back to their home of birth or, or their ancestors' home and so forth. So he's, he's putting into plan, God's plan from hundreds of years ago. So now that we set the stage for this global context, we're going to zoom in into a very little town, like we just talked about in Bethlehem, with a little Jewish family. And it's really important to remember that it's Jewish family. This is a real ethnic family. And just like three or four years ago, a popular Fox News anchor Megan Kelly said Jesus was white. 
Jesus was, Santa Claus was white, and Jesus was white. Everyone knows that. Do you guys remember this? You probably heard it, and then you passed out because of how outrageous that statement was and erased it from your head, right? The reason I'm highlighting the ethnic reality of Jesus being born in this, this ethnic, uh, in this Jewish home is that this is, again, another marker that this actually happened. This wasn't some fairy tale thing. This actually happened in a family in Bethlehem. And as we zoom in, going from the empire, we're now going to this little podunk city. Actually, this family is going to affect ultimately the entire world. So the zoom out, going to zooming in. All right, let's look at verse 4 in chapter 2 of Luke. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Now, there are some very significant details given here that we want to highlight. We already talked about Bethlehem. Um, and, and the fulfillment of Micah 5, but also know that in 2 Samuel 7, the prophecy is that who, the Messiah is going to come from the line of David. And so what is, the, what is Luke highlighting? He's coming from the lineage of David. And if you're a careful reader and you know your Bible, you're going to be like, whoa, this, this guy is fitting the bill for the Messiah. Now, I want to make a side note that David, uh, that, that Joseph is from David's line, and there's there's evidence suggests in Luke's genealogy that Mary is also from David's line. It's not conclusive, but there's evidence that suggests that. But whether or not the, the adoption is there, um, Joseph is Jesus' adopted father, and Joseph and Mary, according to Matthew, are already married. Now, in Luke right here, it says betrothed, and the reason why it says betrothed is because they yet have not consummated their marriage. But if you look at the, Ma uh, the Matthew account, Right after Joseph got the dream to realize that Jesus is the real deal, Mary didn't cheat on him. Mary, this is coming from God. All of a sudden, he marries her in keeping with that. So I just want to make that side point. And at this point, if you've been reading in Luke and keeping up with our sermon series, um, this Messiah that's coming is supposed to be the Savior of the world, the Son of God, and the King. And so now we're going to look at Jesus' birth. But as we do, let's think about what would the expectations be for a king, for a savior, for a son of God. Let's look from the world's perspective, a very common, natural perspective, and then also the Jewish perspective. Let's think about as a world. Let me ask you this. If I were to give you a sheet of paper right now and said, write down a list of the characteristics of the ruler of the world, the savior of the world, the king of the world, what would you write? And also then write another list of what would you do to introduce this said savior and king of the world? What would be on that list? I think a lot of us, if you didn't read your Bible, would say stuff like powerful, coming from the most ancient royal lines, wealth with unlimited resources, charming, good-looking, charismatic, persuadable, a great military conqueror who could put everyone in their place, who would dare come against their rule, beneficent good rule. Right? That's what we would think. And, and that would be a list that would very much be like Caesar Augustus, right? His, his Pax Romana, the rule he brought, was not a rule that people were like, oh, I want to submit to you and love you because you're so good, right? It was, it was, love me or I'll kill you, right? It, it was a very, very um, iron-fisted kind of rule. But that's what you would probably expect if you said, hey, there's a savior of the world, what would he be like? 
like that. Now, let's shift to the Jewish perspective. If you were a Jew waiting for the Messiah for hundreds of years, what would you expect? The reality is the Jews expected to be the Messiah to be just like a Caesar, a political conquering king. And they have reason to believe that. There are texts that suggest that he's going to come with a rod of iron and come and rule and put all his enemies under his feet. But they misunderstood some very, very key texts that explain that before he had liberated the body, he had to liberate the heart. Before he came and liberated the land, he needed to liberate the brokenness in the land, the very curse and the disease of the heart first. So the bottom line is that the Jews, just like the world, expected the Savior to come with power, with glitz and glamour, with charisma and all the trappings that the world finds so intoxicating. Now let's zoom in a little closer to the birth narrative, what happens in verse 6. Luke chapter 2, verse 6, if you're keeping up in your Bible. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, Mary to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. And wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now that's the rest of our passage and that's the rest of the narrative of what happened in Jesus' birth. Outside of next week when Pastor Daniel is going to go into the shepherds. But that's it. And believe it or not, this is the longest account of his birth. Longer than Matthew, Mark, and John. I want more, don't you? But in these few words tells us so much. And I, guys, I overlooked this over and over again. I was like, da, 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 da. I, like, I don't even read the passages anymore because I know them. I'm so familiar. But I sat and I looked at these carefully and I said, oh my gosh, Jesus, this is insane. See, the th- theme that I want to highlight as we go deeper is this idea of humiliation. Jesus was humiliated in his birth. Would you ever say such a thing? That the birth of Jesus was an absolute humiliation? No, no, we don't think that. We think cute oxen who are smiling in a very nice stable. Somehow great lighting. Again, I just don't understand the lighting situation, right? But this was the absolute humiliation for Jesus. And I, I want to show you that. There's nothing short of humiliating. This demonstrates his humility, which I want us to marvel at. I want us to marvel at the absurd humility of Jesus. So let's look at three factors that demonstrate the absurd humility of Jesus. Number one, the incarnation. Perhaps you're unfamiliar with this term, incarnation. If you ever go to a Mexican restaurant and get carne asada, anyone? Right? Carne, flesh, right? This is not where the word comes from, but there is a connection there. People, some people are like, yeah, carne. All right? Basically, incarnation. Can you just say that word, Incarnation. It's it's a theological term that we don't like using too much, but it's important to know it's a significant one because what's it saying is that God is taking on flesh. And we're going to go deeper into the midweek podcast and go super nerd out and just go hard at it, all right? Especially Pastor Ross, he's excited about doing this. But what the incarnation is basically saying this, is that God became fully man and yet was still fully God. Now, the reason why that's tricky is because I know I sound like I just said garbly goop, right? I literally just said one plus one equals one. Right? God is fully man, yet fully uh, divine, and yet perfectly one. And so that we're, that's what we're going to get into. But I want to highlight, while I have you here, one aspect of the incarnation. First of all, before we appreciate the incarnation, we need to talk about what God is like. What is God like? I want to remind you that God is not like us, except a little better. Or like us, but a lot better. 
How, how much does God love? Well, he loves like me, but just like this much more, right? right. We, 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 we don't realize that he's in a completely different category from us. He's the creator. We are the creation. The same God that created the galaxies, the billions of galaxies and the stars and waterfalls and animals and marriage and friendship and love, all of that, that God became a man took on flesh, subjected himself to weakness. Think about this. God never, ever got thirsty until he became a man. Now he could get sick. Now he could trip and fall. Now he could get tired and have to sleep. The God who had infinite resources, infinite energy, infinite everything, took on finitude. He now limited himself in some mysterious way. This is baffling and humbling at the same time. But if he's going to be a man, I, I, I bet I could see in my mind, if I, if I didn't understand the Bible and understand the character of God, I could imagine Jesus with the Father and be like, all right, Father, I'm going to go and save those miserable people. They're not even going to be really grateful for it anyway, but let, let me do this. God, if I'm going to go on that earth for these people, let me get the best of the earth, right? If I'm going to limit myself and all of a sudden get hungry and thirsty and sick and limit myself and not be omniscient and all that kind of stuff and... Let me at least get the best of the world. Let me feast every day. Let me have people massaging me 24-7. Let me have it so easy and good, and then I'll die for those wretched sinners, right? Wouldn't you think that, that that's what you would do? If I'm going to take on flesh? That's what I would think, right? If you understand um, the traditions of Muslim suicide bombers, oftentimes before they would do their final bombing, what will they do right before? They'll, they'll get lavished with praise and feasting and all the joys of the world. I would think, if I was just thinking about God in a human way, I would think Jesus would do that. But he doesn't. And one of the phrases that I want to say over and over again, even the best the world has to offer Jesus is not enough, and yet he didn't even get the best. Think about that. The world's best was still not worthy for Jesus, and we didn't give him the best. He'd even take the best. Absurd. Wildly inappropriate. Illogical. Inappropriate. Let's marvel at the absurd humility of Jesus. So the first factor demonstrating the absurd humility of Jesus is the fact that he just even became a man. That's absurd. That's humble. That's uncalled for. And now the second one is that he didn't just become a man, he became a baby. See, if he were to become a man, I would think that, you know what, let him come like a, a Herculean demigod, fully mature, very independent, very strong, like kind of God still, and he can just like flip over giant stables, like he had all the strength. Like, that's what I would think in my human thinking if I didn't know my Bible, that that's what Jesus would have done. Think about this. We have a handful of babies in this church, God willing more, and we've lost them too. Have you guys ever been around a baby? They're absolutely useless, right? They're, they're helpless. Hope, hope, our baby, can literally do almost nothing. She's six months old, and she's just now starting to do some basic movements. But as, as you guys know, humans are unique among, um, among the world as creation, right? Compared to animals, there are many animals who can take care of themselves shortly after they're born. Many who can walk. 
Hope can't even get close to walking. She doesn't even know the concept of walking is yet. And it's not because she's dumb. It's because she's a baby. And Jesus became a baby. How vulnerable and helpless are babies? Literally, if we took my baby Hope and put her outside, it's not like she like eventually adapt and figure it out. She's dead. Jesus put himself in that vulnerable state as a baby. Marvel at the absurd humiliation of Jesus. Think about this. Jesus had to get his whatever they had for diapers changed. Jesus had to get fed. Jesus had to be comforted by a creature. I was trying to think about what's the most absurd, humiliating kind of reality that we could probably relate to. Do any of you guys have aging parents who now have to wear diapers? We're all going to get there. You start in a diaper, you end in a diaper. And you know how humiliating it is? I was just even talking to TK and his grandma was like, I ain't doing that. Put me in a group, put me in one of those homes. I'm letting my son or daughter watch me like that. Wash me, change me. You know how humiliating that is for me to one day get to the place where Elijah has to change me? Hope has to change me, clean me, lead me around because I'm losing my mind? How humiliating that is? I think that if you start thinking that way, we start to get close to understanding the absurdity of Jesus the creator, co-creator with God from beginning of time, before the beginning of time, coming down and being a baby. This is absurd. Marvel, church, marvel at the absurd humility of Jesus. The third demonstration is the fact of where he, Jesus was born. Let's look at his birthplace. So second was his, him becoming a baby. The third is his birthplace. Where would you expect a king to be born? Caesar's palace. Not the casino, but Caesar's palace. A nice, cushy room with nice temperature control, with attendance around the clock. Let's read this again in verse 7. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid, in, laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, let's get an accurate picture of what's going on here because many, have you guys watched a movie on this before, right? There's nativity movie, there's all these kind of movies and maybe you've re read books that kind of show little cute little situations. Let's talk about where he wasn't born because it, we, we make a great deal about him having no room at the inn. That's a classic translation that there's no room at the inn. Now let me show this picture right here for you. The, the tricky thing is that the word inn used here is the Greek word that is actually not for a commercial inn like the Hampton Inn. So we, we often think about this giant place that had all these rooms, and they're like, no room at the end, we're evil, we hate you, right? Like, that's the kind of mindset we usually have. But actually, more, more likely, it, it was something like this. In the first century house, there was two floors for, for the average poor person, and at the bottom is actually where the animals would stay, and the top is where the other rest of the people would stay. And so when you would have guests in town, you could have them in the first floor. Now, there's also an ancient tradition coming back from Justin Martyr in the 2nd century that Jesus was born in a cave. And that's what you would visit at um, the, the, the Bethlehem church that Joanne and I have been at is over this cave that you can kind of go into a little bit. And so that's the other tradition. So it's either this situation um, or a cave. 
And the reason why we also can say a cave is because in the cave is often where they would put a stable or a barn. And you know that he was in that kind of setting because Mary placed him in a what? A manger. Now, I want to talk about a manger real quick because I think just like all the nativity scenes we have, it's very cute. You have like a really nice clean box, like made out of like really nice wood. But most likely a manger, manger again is a feeding trough. And basically what it would probably have been is just like a ditch in the ground where animals can just eat. So not very hygienic, not something you'd feel comfortable sitting in. And so Mary wrapped him in cloths and put him in a feeding trough. So whether it's in this kind of situation, the first floor among animals, or he's in a cave, none of us would have asked this, wanted this for our own child, right? Nobody would have that in their birth plan. You guys know what birth plans are? You guys know how crazy it is? Have you ever had one or been around someone who's been like that? Right? Birth plans are these perfect plans that mothers will have. They'll be like, all right, my child. All right, honey, when we're at the hospital, I want this playlist playing while I push. And then I want an essential oil diffuser in the background pumping out lavender to keep me calm. I want my special blue birth ball right there just so I can kind of get relaxed and all this stuff. Right? Do you guys want to talk about the crazy birth plan? It is nice. See, we had a birth plan for all of our children. And our second child, Eden, as many of you guys know the story, I won't go into the exciting details, but it's a really great story. But we were going to take Eden to, uh, Joanna to get uh, to the hospital, to to the midwife. And um, all of a sudden, her contractions ramped up. And I was like, come on, Joanna, we got to go. Please get up. She's like, I can't get up. Baby's coming right now. I'm like, no, that's not possible. It can't happen. I rebuke that in Jesus' name. I will carry you. And then Joanna looked down, and her, her stomach was no longer flat. The baby had dropped. And so I'm panicking, but very coolly, I'll, I'll have you. And I get on the phone with the midwife, and I deliver Eden in our living room. And Hannah Gruber was racing to our house and cleaned up all the mess as we were at the hospital. <laughs> Now, I share that story because it's great, but also because we did that in the living room. And we immediately were like, oh, like the living room, not the living room. And imagine if we did that in our house that we live in now, which we have an animal, Felix, the dog. He's great. He's one of the best dogs I know. But if, if I was delivering Eden in the living room and Felix came uh, coming in, sniffingly in, what would I do? Get out! Right? I just like start throwing stuff at Felix. Get out of here, Felix. I don't care how good you are, right? Because I am not going to let an animal around my, my baby. I'm not going to let anything mess it up. And I can just imagine Joseph and Mary as they're looking for proper lodging so they can have the birth of their child. And they're thinking, this is the Messiah. He deserves the best. Can you imagine the heartbreak? He deserved better than this. My wife, if I'm Joseph, deserves better than this. Let me share this quote from Kent Hughes. This is really powerful. Joseph probably wept as much as Mary did, seeing her pain, the stinking barnyard, their poverty, people's indifference, the humiliation, and the sense of utter helplessness, feeling shame at not being able to provide for the young Mary on the night of her travail. All that would make a man either curse or cry. 
If we imagine that Jesus was born, please hear me, guys. If Jesus was born in a freshly swept country fair stable, we miss the whole point. It was wretched, scandalous. There was sweat and pain and blood and cries as Mary reached up to the heavens for help. The earth was cold and hard. The smell of birth mixed with the stench of manure and acrid straw made a contemptible bouquet. Trembling carpenter's hands, clumsy with fear, grasped God's son slippery with blood, the baby's limbs waving helplessly as if it's falling through space, his face grimacing as he gasped in the cold, and his cry pierced the night. See, if you have this idea of Jesus' really cute birth, you totally misunderstand. It was probably completely, almost completely dark. And as many mothers know, you want your mom to be there, right? You want your best friends and the people you love most to be there. They didn't have that. They didn't have that support system. They had the animals. They had their, their mooing, their smells, their manure. The humiliation of Jesus here is absurd. Can you contrast this to Caesar Augustus and how he would be born? The amount of fanfare, the whole Roman world would hear about, oh, Caesar Augustus had a son. Do you hear? The next in line. And if you look at Jesus' birth and even the next chapter, very few people knew of him at all. Most people had no idea he was born. He came secretly and quietly. Caesar Augustus probably lived and died and never heard of Jesus' name. But little does he know that in just a couple centuries, Christianity would spread throughout the entire world. And even one of the emperors himself would become a Christian. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It comes quietly. In, in our pre-service prep, Pastor Ross was going over a sermon, and he thought about it, and later on he texted me, and this is what he said. Ross, you're getting quoted, bro. It's on the screen. Maybe not. In his census, Augustus is laying hold of and seizing everything and everyone he could. And in his incarnation, Jesus is coming to give everything to us. See the contrast? Caesar in his life is about me getting more, more of my fame. And Jesus is laying down all of that so he can give it to us, his people. The world's best is still not good enough for Jesus, and yet he got the worst. He got the pe peasant's treatment. What is the definition of absurd, remember? Wildly unreasonable, illogical, and inappropriate. Are you marveling yet, church, at the absurd humility of Jesus? It's absurd. Who is like this son? Who is like our Jesus? So now let's ask our question, how should we now think and live? Here's four questions to ponder quickly. Number one, why is it good news that he was born in a manger instead of Caesar's palace? Why is that good news? Yes, it happened. Historically, it happened. But why is that good news for you and me? Well, it, it suggests that he's able to meet us in our junk. He's able to meet us where we're at, in the muck and mire of our brokenness of our world. He's not a king that can't relate to people. He's the people's king. And when you think about the shepherds coming next chapter, they could probably see the, the stench of the, the atmosphere and look at this pitiful scene and, and know that this is the king because the angels told them, and they, they, I can imagine them thinking, I can relate with a king like this. When he's older, he'll remember his origins. He's not going to take over our fields. He's not going to forget where he came from. 
this is a king I can connect with and relate to. See, this is really good news that Jesus was born in a manger in a feeding trough and not in a throne. Because this is the kind of king that can meet us where we're at. And I know the stories of probably 95% of the room right here. And we're full of brokenness and full of things that we're ashamed of. And it's such good news that Jesus can meet us where we're at. Amen? Number two, do we want this Jesus? Let me speak to those of you who are not putting your trust in Jesus yet. Maybe you call Jesus Lord, but he's actually not Lord. Or maybe you're bold enough to say, I don't even know what, what this Jesus is all about. Listen, outside of a few faithful Israelites that we're going to see in Luke, most people didn't know him. And they weren't looking for him. And when Jesus gets older, he goes looking for them. And yet they don't want him. They want a conquering king that will make all their dreams come true. And that really is, sadly, the American Jesus that we have. Follow Jesus and he'll make all your dreams come true. And that's the kind of Jesus that the people of Israel, Israel, Israelis wanted. But instead he comes as a slain, humble lamb. One that people despised. One that did not have an appearance worth looking at, according to Isaiah 53. And as one commentator has said, when Christ first came among us, we pushed him into an outhouse, and we have done our best to keep him there ever since. Why would Jesus subject himself to such a humble state? Why would Jesus do this? Well, let me give you a quote from John MacArthur, popular preacher, author. It was fitting in a sense that he was born in a stinking, smelly stable because what smelled far worse to the nostrils of God than the odor of animals is the odor of sinners. He set the Savior all the way down into the lives of the lowly and the whole picture of, what, of that scene is a metaphor for the stench of sin which Jesus bore in his own body. See, our rebellion, every single one of us, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, our rebellion is or was a stench to the nostrils of the Holy God. And because of our rebellion, we deserve death. And Jesus, from the moment he's born, is taking on the sufferings of the world. From the moment he's born to the moment of his death, he's taking on the sufferings of our sins, our punishment, our penalty upon his shoulders. The same body that is wrapped in swaddling clothes will one day be wrapped in burial clothes for us. In his life, death, resurrection, Jesus is going to reverse all suffering and make everything sad come untrue. All of it will go. And it's through this baby Jesus. So if you're not trusting in Jesus, you don't have to be in that state. You can have him today. He went to great lengths so that you can have him so you can have peace with God, so you can have no more suffering one day with him. Why wouldn't you want a God like this? Christian, we have a God like this. But if you're not a Christian, why wouldn't you want a God like this, so humble and so loving? Doesn't your heart just yearn for someone like that? But one day, Jesus will not come quietly like a baby. He'll come with a loud trumpet shout. He'll come with the greatest might and military force this world has ever seen or will ever see. All his enemies will be put under his feet. And everyone who has not bowed humbly now will bow in terror then. 
And I just ask of you, bow humbly today. Don't wait. Don't wait till that day. Don't wait in that day. I know it. I know that day is going to come for some of you, and you're going to say, oh, crap, if I only had another day. Oh, I didn't know. You are real. You are real. More time, more time. Let it be today that you humble your knee. Get on your knees today. Humble yourself before the king, before the humble king. If you want him, come talk to one of our members. We'd love to tell you what it means to follow Jesus. Answer any questions. Pray with you. Baptize you. Have you part of this family. And so for the Christians here, back to the same question, do you want him? We all want him, don't we? But sometimes we don't, if we want to be honest. We want him, but we don't always want everything that he brings. And so I want to just ask you this question is, do you want his humility? I know you want his blessings and his love and his favor, but do you want Jesus' humility? Because if you want all of them, if you want him, you've got to have all of them. And that includes his humility. One evidence that I don't have this and that maybe you don't have this is I regularly have a thought come to my mind, either in just in my head or I say it, I say this line, I don't deserve this. You guys said that before? Maybe you said it this week. Maybe you said it today. I don't deserve that lack of love or that treatment or this pay or this station in life or this treatment or whatever it is. I don't deserve this. And I'm so grateful Jesus didn't say that. Aren't you? I don't deserve, I'm out of here, Jesus. I, God, Father, I'm out of here. I don't deserve this. And he didn't deserve it. And yet he treated his life like he deserved it. He was treated on the cross like he deserved it. And that's the Messiah that we follow. And if you have a Messiah that you follow that does not have that, then you don't have the real, real Messiah. Number three, are you more impressed by the ways of Caesar or Jesus? Let me ask you, what are you impressed by? What impresses you? The world celebrates fame, power, comfort, status, money, prestige. And yet Jesus' life in his kingdom is marked by the opposite of humility, of going low. What are you drawn to? Maybe if you're honest with yourself today, maybe you have a lot of pride in your heart. You have a lot of pride in what you wear, what you where you go or travel to, who you know. And you know, one of the great weaknesses or dangers of our age is Instagram, is Facebook, is Twitter, because all of our idols get paraded in front of everyone else. And all of our hearts can yearn and say, that's not me, I'm so discontent. Or we can just put on this false self of this is how good my life is. And if you look at the way your heart responds to Instagram posts and Facebook posts, that can give you a good glimpse of where your heart is finding its boasting. Are you attracted to the, the glamour or are you attracted to humility? See, I know, I know that my heart is right there with you. If you feel like I'm condemning you, I'm not. I'm right there with you. Recently, I was on a trip to St. Louis for a ministry trip, and I had an eight-hour layover in, in St. Louis, and so I paid up for one of those uh, sky lounges so I can get a lot of work done and not just be sitting in an uncomfortable chair and whatever. And while I was there, I was like, this is pretty nice. Unlimited bar, unlimited food. I ate a lot. People waited on me hand and foot, and I just felt pretty special. And I'm not saying you should never pamper yourself because there is, a, there is such a thing as a rhythm of feasting and fasting in the Christian life. That's good. But I saw in my heart a sense of pride 
disdain as I looked at other people. Look at them buying their expensive, you know, whatever drinks and look at them sitting in their uncomfortable chairs. And that's just the dirtiness of my heart. And I felt a little pride. Let me share another instance where I'm seeing the worldly values in my heart. Financially, we needed to make some more money lately, so I've been doing DoorDash again. I used to do rideshare and DoorDash and delivery. And I can find myself sometimes sitting in the waiting room with all the other DoorDashers who are all like 20 and 18, stuff like that. And I'm sitting there, and I sometimes want to defend myself if I start talking to them. I actually got a master's degree. I actually got four kids. Believe it or not, I am not 12. I know I look like I'm 12, but I'm 31. You know, I, I want people to know. I want my status to be out there. And, and that's, that's sick. Maybe you're like that. I'm just using those examples from my own heart to show I'm there right there with you. I sometimes love what the world loves. I value the glitz and glamour and the power. And so I encourage you to check your heart today. Are you more impressed with the world is impressed by? Would you have disdained the lowly birth of Jesus like everyone else did? Or do you treasure the ways of our humble king? Let me ask you what this we're going to do in light of this. I'm going to skip the fourth point, but I'll put it in the midweek podcast. What should you do in light of all this? I want to challenge you tonight to repent of your pride with me. And maybe if you haven't done this in a while or you never do this, I encourage you to get on your knees sometime during the ministry time. Just humble yourself. Sometimes our hearts follow our body postures. Just encourage you to get on your face. Say, Jesus, thank you for being such a humble king. Adore the humility of the king and ask God to help you embody the humility of our king. He already knows it. He already knows you're proud. He already knows what you put your boast in. Just give it to him today. Dear family, as I close, imagine this. What if we were truly a church, a family that embraced the humble king? Can you imagine how much judgment would be out of this house, out of this family, that we would no longer be comparing with one another, peacocking with one another, trying to fight to have more clout or more love from others? that we could really be ourselves and take off our masks. We could really be this authentic family as one of our values is. Because we would only want the attention on the King Jesus. Because it's not about us. Oh, that we would be like that. And so church, let me just call you as I end to let us adore the absurd humility of Jesus.